0: CHAPTER FIFTEEN OF MY FIRST BOOK This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter My First Book by Various A Life's Atonement by David Christie Murray I began my first book more years ago than I care to count, and naturally enough, it took poetic form, if not poetic substance. In its original shape, it was called Marsh Hall, and ran into four cantos. On the eve of my twenty first birthday, I sent the manuscript to Messrs. Macmillan, who, very wisely, as I have since come to believe, counselled me not to publish it. I say this in full sincerity, though I remember some of the youthful bombast not altogether without affection. Here and there I can recall a passage which still seems respectable. I wrote reams of verse in those days, but when I came into the rough and tumble of journalistic life, I was too occupied to court the muses any longer, and found myself condemned to a life of prose. I was acting as special correspondent for the Birmingham Morning News in the year 73. I think it was 73, though it might have been a year later. And at that time, Mr. Edmund Yates was lecturing in America, and a novel of his, the last he ever wrote, was running through our columns. Whether the genial Atlas, who at that time had not taken the burden of the world upon his shoulders, found his associations too numerous and heavy, I can only guess. But he closed the story with an unexpected suddenness, and the editor, who had supposed himself to have a month or two in hand in which to make arrangements for his next serial was confronted with the finis of mr yates's work and was compelled to start a new novel at a week's notice in this extremity he turned to me i think young un he said that you ought to be able to write a novel i shared his faith and had indeed already begun a story which i had christened Brace forbeach I handed him two chapters, which he read at once, and in high feather, sent to the printer. It never bade fair to be a mighty work, but at least it fulfilled the meaning of the original edition of Pope's famous line, for it was certainly all without a plan. I had appropriate scenery in my mind, no end of typical people to draw, and one or two moving actualities to work from. But I had forgotten the plot to attempt a novel without a definite scheme of some sort is very like trying to make a christmas pudding without a cloth ruth pinch was uncertain as to whether her first venture at a pudding might not turn out a soup my novelistic effort i am sorry to confess had no cohesion in it its parts got loose in the cooking and i have reason to think that most people who tried it found the dish repellent The cashier assured me that I had sent down the circulation of the Saturday issue by 16,000. I had excellent reasons for disbelieving this circumstantial statement in the fact that the Saturday issue had never reached that number, but I have no doubt I did a deal of damage. There had been an idea in Marsh Hall, and what with interpolated ballads and poetic excursions and alarums of all sorts, i had found in it matter enough to fill out my four cantos i set out with the intent to work that same idea through the pages of grace forbeach but it was too scanty for the uses of a three-volume novel at least in the hands of a tyro i know one or two accomplished gentlemen who could make it serve the purpose admirably and perhaps i myself might do something with it at a pinch at this time of day anyhow as it was The cloth was too small to hold the pudding, and in the process of cooking I was driven to the most desperate expedients. To drop the simile, and to come to the plain facts of the case, I sent all my wicked and superfluous people into a coal-mine, and there put an end to them by an inrush of water. I forget what became of the hero, but I know that some of the most promising characters dropped out of that story, and were no more heard of. The sub-editor used occasionally, for my encouragement, to show me letters he had received, denouncing the work, and asking wrathfully when it would end. Whilst I am about Grace Forbeach, it may be worth while to tell the story of the champion printer's error of my experience. I wrote at the close of the story, Are there no troubles now? the lover asks. Not one, dear Frank, not one. And then in brackets thus, I set the words, white line this was a technical instruction to the printer and meant that one line of space should be left clear the genius who had the copy in hand put the lover's speech in type correctly and then setting it out as if it were a line of verse he gave me not one dear frank not one white line it was a custom in the printing office to suspend a leather medal by a leather bootlace round the neck of the man who had achieved the prize betise of the year it was somewhere about midsummer at this time but it was instantly and unanimously resolved that nothing better than this would or could be done by anybody the compositors performed what they called a jerry in the blunderer's honour and invested him after an animated fight with the medal grace for has been dead and buried for very nearly a score of years It never saw book form, and I was never anxious that it should do so, but as it had grown out of Marsh Hall, so my first book grew out of it, and, oddly enough, not only my first, but my second and my third. Joseph's coat, which made my fortune, and gave me such literary standing as I have, was built on one episode of that abortive story, and Val Strange was constructed and written to lead up to the episode of the attempted suicide on Welbeck Head, which had formed the culminating point in the poem. When I got to London, I determined to try my hand anew, and, having learned by failure something more than success could ever have taught me, I built up my scheme before I started on my book. Having come to utter grief for want of a scheme to work on, I ran, in my eagerness to avoid that fault. In the opposite extreme, and built an iron-bound plot, which afterwards cost me very many weeks of unnecessary and unvalued labour. I am quite sure that no reader of A Life's Atonement ever guessed that the author took one tithe, or even one twentieth part, of the trouble it actually cost to weave the two strands of its narrative together. I divided my story into thirty-six chapters, twelve of these were autobiographical in the sense that they were supposed to be written by the hero in person the remaining twenty-four were historical purporting to be written that is by an impersonal author the autobiographical portions necessarily began in the childhood of the narrator and between them and the history there was a considerable gulf of time little by little this gulf had to be bridged over until the action in both portions of the story became synchronous i really do not suppose that the most pitiless critic ever felt it worth his while to question the accuracy of my dates and i dare say that all the trouble i took was quite useless but i fixed in my own mind the actual years over which the story extended and spent scores of hours in the consultation of old almanacs I have never verified the work since it was done but i believe that in this one respect at least it is beyond cavil the two central figures of the book were lifted straight from the story of marsh Hall, and grace forbeach gave her quota to the narrative i had completed the first volume when i received a commission to go out as special correspondent to the russo-turkish war i left the manuscript behind me and for many months the scheme was banished from my mind i went through those cities of the dead Kesanlink, kalofar Kalova, and sopot i watched the long-drawn artillery duel at the shipka pass made the dreary month-long march in the rainy season from orkhani to plevna with the army of reinforcement under Chevket, pasha and Chakia pasha lived in the besieged town until Osman drove away all foreign visitors and sent out his wounded to sow the whole melancholy road with corpses. I put up on the heights of Tashkeshin and saw the stubborn defense of Mehmet Ali, and there was pounced upon by the Turkish authorities for a too-faithful dealing with the story of the horrors of the war, and was deported to Constantinople i had originally gone out for an american journal at the instance of a gentleman who exceeded his instructions in dispatching me and i was left high and dry in the turkish capital without a penny and without a friend but work of the kind i could do was wanted and i was on the spot i slid into an engagement with the scotsman and then into another with the times the late mr macdonald who was killed by the pigott forgeries was then manager of the leading journal and offered me fresh work i waited for it and a year of wild adventure in the face of war had given me such a taste for that sort of existence that i let a life's atonement slide and had no thought of taking it up again a misunderstanding with the times authorities happily cleared up years after left me in the cold and i was bound to do something for a living the first volume of a life's atonement had been written in the intervals of labour in the gallery of the house of commons and such work as an active hack journalist confined among the magazines and the weekly society papers i had been away a whole year and everywhere my place was filled it was obviously no use to a man in want of ready money to undertake the completion of a three-volume novel of which only one volume was written and so I betook myself to the writing of short stories. The very first of these was blessed by a lucky accident. Mr. George Augustus Sala had begun to write for the Gentleman's Magazine a story called, if I remember rightly, Dr. Cupid. Sala was suddenly summoned by the proprietors of the Daily Telegraph to undertake one of his innumerable journeys, and the copy of the second instalment of his story Reached the editor too late for publication. Just when the publishers of the Gentlemen's were at a loss for suitable copy, my manuscript of an old Meerschaum reached them, and to my delighted surprise, I received proofs almost by return of post. The story appeared with an illustration by Arthur Hopkins, and about a week later, there came to me through Messrs Chato and Windus a letter from Robert Chambers sir i have read with unusual pleasure and interest in this month's gentleman's magazine a story from your pen entitled an old meerschaum if you have a novel on hand or in preparation i should be glad to see it in the meantime a short story not much longer than an old meerschaum would be gladly considered by yours very truly robert chambers P.S. We publish no authors' names, but we pay handsomely. This letter brought back to mind at once the neglected life's atonement, but I was uncertain as to the whereabouts of the manuscript. I searched everywhere amongst my own belongings in vain, but it suddenly occurred to me that I had left it in charge of a passing acquaintance of mine, who had taken up the unexpired lease of my chambers in Gray's Inn at the time of my departure for the seat of war. "'I jumped into a cab and drove off in search of my property. "'The shabby old laundress who had made my bed "'and served my breakfast was pottering about the rooms. "'She remembered me perfectly well, of course, "'but could not remember that I had left anything behind me "'when I went away. "'I talked of manuscript, and she recalled doubtfully "'a quantity of waste paper of the final destination "'of which she knew nothing.' I began to think it extremely improbable that I should ever recover a line of the missing novel. When she opened a cupboard and drew from it a brown paper parcel, and opening it, displayed to me the manuscript of which I was in search. I took it home and read it through with infinite misgiving. The enthusiasm with which I had begun the work had long since had time to pall, and the whole thing looked weary, flat, stale and unprofitable for one thing i had adopted the abominable expedient of writing in the present tense so far as the autobiographical portion of the work was concerned and in the interval which had gone by my taste had i suppose undergone an unconscious correction it was a dull business but despondent as i was i found the heart to rewrite those chapters Charles Reed describes the task of writing out one's work a second time as nauseous, and I confess that I am with him with all my heart. It is a misery which I have never since, in all my work, imposed upon myself. At that time, I counted amongst my friends an eminent novelist, on whose critical faculty and honesty I knew I could place the most absolute reliance. I submitted my revised first volume to his judgment and was surprised to learn that he thought highly of it his judgment gave me new courage and i sent the copy into chambers after a delay of a week or two i received a letter which gave me i think a keener delight than has ever touched me at the receipt of any other communication if wrote robert chambers the rest is as good as the first volume i shall accept the book with pleasure our price for the serial use will be two hundred and fifty pounds of which we will pay one hundred pounds on receipt of completed manuscript the remaining one hundred and fifty pounds will be paid on the publication of the first monthly number i had been out of harness for so long a time and had been by desultory work able to earn so little that this letter seemed to open a sort of eldorado to my gaze It was not that alone which made it so agreeable to receive. It opened the way to an honourable ambition which I had long nourished, and I slaved away at the remaining two volumes with an enthusiasm which I have never been able to revive. There are two or three people still extant who know in part the privations I endured whilst the book was being finished. I set everything else on one side for it, incautiously enough, and for two months I did not earn a penny by other means. The most trying accident of all the time was the tobacco famine, which set in towards the close of the third volume. But, in spite of all obstacles, the book was finished. I worked all night at the final chapter, and wrote Fini, somewhere about five o'clock on a summer morning. I shall never forget the solemn exultation with which I laid down my pen And looked from the window of the little room in which I had been working over the golden splendour of the gorse covered common of Ditton Marsh. All my original enthusiasm had revived, and in the course of my lonely labours had grown to a white heat. I solemnly believed at that moment that I had written a great book. I suppose I may make that confession now without proclaiming myself a fool. I really and seriously believed. the work i had just finished was original in conception style and character no reviewer ever taunted me with the fact but the truth is that a life's atonement is a very curious instance of unconscious plagiarism it is quite evident to my mind now that if there had been no david copperfield there would have been no life's atonement my gascoigne is steerforth my john campbell is david john's aunt is miss betsy trotwood sally Troman is peggotty the very separation of the friends though brought about by a different cause is a reminiscence i was utterly unconscious of these facts and remembering how devotedly and honestly i worked how resolute i was to put my best of observation and invention into the story i have ever since felt chary of entertaining a charge of plagiarism against anybody there are of course flagrant and obvious cases but i believe that in nine instances out of ten the supposed criminal had worked as i did having so completely absorbed and digested in childhood the work of an admired master that he has come to feel that work as an actual portion of himself A Life's Atonement ran its course through Chambers' Journal in due time, and was received with favour. Messrs. Griffin and Farron undertook its publication in book form, but one or two accidental circumstances forbade it to prosper in their hands. To begin with, the firm at that time had only newly decided on publishing novels at all, and a work under such a title, and issued by such a house, was naturally supposed to have a theological tendency. Then again, in the very week in which my book saw the light, Lothair appeared, and for the time being swamped everything. All the world read Lothair, all the world talked about it, and all the newspapers and reviews dealt with it, to the exclusion of the products of the smaller fry. Later on, A Life's Atonement was handsomely reviewed, and was indeed, as I am disposed to think, praised a good deal beyond its merits but it lay a dead weight on the hands of its original publishers until messrs chato and windus expressed a wish to incorporate it in their piccadilly series the negotiations between the two houses were easily completed the stock was transferred from one establishment to the other the volumes were stripped of their old binding and dressed anew and with this novel impetus the story reached a second edition in three-volume form it brought me almost immediately two commissions, and by the time that they were completed, I had grown into a professional novel writer. End of chapter fifteen.